Well, we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We are at week 11 and we're going to finish next week. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is undoubtedly the most famous collection of Jesus' teachings, and I argued last week uh, probably the most influential ethical discourse in the history of the Western world. In just 2,000 words, that's the length, a little bit uh, fewer than 2,000 words, uh, Jesus casts his vision of the good life, of the blessed life of the life that participates in the mind of the Creator and so fulfills our purpose as creatures. And I hope that you've seen uh, it isn't simply a list of do's and don'ts. It isn't a mere morality that Jesus lays down, but a marvelous vision of a different approach to life that opens up fresh possibilities for the social order, but also uh, for us individually. We've seen that this vision of life involves meekness, mercy, peacemaking, sexual integrity, truth-telling, love of enemies, turning the other cheek, charity to the poor and simplicity of prayer, and shunning of religious hypocrisy, and keeping our distance from worldly materialism. And with this vision cast in Matthew chapters 5 and 6, chapter 7 begins to land this heavy plane. And we saw last week in the opening two paragraphs of Matthew 7 that Jesus doesn't so much add a new ethical item when he says, judge not lest you be judged, take the plank out of your own eye. Rather, he explains what is the proper stance of the person who has truly understood Jesus' ethical vision. If you have genuinely understood the teaching of Jesus in all of its beauty and loftiness, you will not condemn those who don't live by that vision. You will find a way, like Jesus did, to love and respect other sinners, just as we all find ways to love and respect ourselves, despite our many sins. That was last week. This week, Jesus continues to bring the Sermon on the Mount to a close by, I think, answering the crucial question. How on earth do we obey this stuff? It is so lofty in its vision of life. How do we actually practice it? Well, I think we get three wonderful keys to fulfilling the Sermon on the Mount in verses 7 to 20, which I really hope you have open. We're going to take them uh, in turn, paragraph by paragraph. Um, but what it seems to me Jesus is doing is, is offering this powerful threefold challenge, each of which is introduced with a lead verb in the imperative mood for the nerds who care about such things. In verse 7, ask. In verse 13, enter. In verse 15, watch out. And these are our sort of three banners uh, for uh, today's talk, and they look to me like the keys to obeying the Sermon on the Mount. I'll take them in turn, uh, giving them these three headings. Ask for obedience, accept unpopularity, and be careful who you listen to. That's the plan. Let's get going. Ask for obedience. If you look at that first 
paragraph, verses 7 on. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened to them. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The, the emphasis here is on good gifts. On, on the Father's goodness of merely asking and receiving. And, and this is such an important theme that we have um, repeated over and over again. The Sermon on the Mount insists that you don't get in God's good books by doing the Sermon on the Mount. The lead theme of the Sermon on the Mount is that it's a gift. And do you remember, those of you, I know some of you have um, tried to memorize the Beatitudes, the eight opening blessing statements of the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm pretty sure most of you remember the very first line of the Sermon on the Mount. The opening thing he says to his people, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as I've said repeatedly through this series, this opening line is a key to the whole thing. The person who can be confident they have the kingdom of God is not the person who thinks they are morally rich already. No, but the person who knows they are poor, the person who looks at their own spirit, their inner self before God, and knows they're out of credit, morally speaking, that they need the mercy of God. Isn't that fascinating? The most lofty ethical discourse in history actually begins by asking us to recognize our poverty of spirit. And I believe this is not just the opening line of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. It's like a banner over everything in the Sermon on the Mount. You never get beyond actually thinking you are poor in spirit before God and utterly dependent on his gift of grace. Now, our verses... All those paragraphs later, here in uh, chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, emphasize the same thing, the same gift nature, but with a different and crucial accent that I want you to observe. We are to ask, seek, and knock to receive the good gifts of the Father, but here the gift is not entering the kingdom. Here the gift is living for the kingdom. Verse 12 is the key. I left it out when I just read it deliberately, but I want you to zero in on the logical pivot from verse 11 to verse 12, and you'll see what Jesus is talking about. So verse 11 ends with, How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And we're thinking to ourselves, what good gifts? Answer? Verse 12. So... In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Verse 12 could read like a random, disconnected statement, merely summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. And in a sense, it is a lovely summary of the Sermon on the Mount, which is why they call it the golden rule. The golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do to you. And I've said before, we find no other speaker, east or west, that taught the golden rule. We find the silver rule everywhere. Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. But only Jesus, so far as we can tell, said do to others the positive good you want them to do to you. 
But notice how verse 12 begins. It begins with a so or therefore, both in the original Greek and in the English. This makes clear that verse 12 is actually the punchline of the gift-giving bit. All right, this is the logic I want us to spot. It's the punchline of the ask, seek, knock for the good gifts of the Father. We are, in other words, to ask for this life of doing to others as we would have them do to us. And given that God is a better giver of gifts than any human parent, he will give us the gift of living this life of the Sermon on the Mount. It may sound weird to speak of our obedience as God's gift, but actually the New Testament teaches it everywhere. This is not not a weird thing here. You think of the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at a few weeks ago, also in the Sermon on the Mount. Sorry, the Lord's Prayer, remember? Um, We ask in the Lord's Prayer, lead us where? Not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Huh. Sounds like you've got to depend on the Lord to avoid temptation and, uh, and avoid evil. Here's the Apostle Paul saying the same thing. Uh, later in his letter to the Philippians, he writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We are to work out our obedience, but always knowing that God is working in us, even to will to do the good. And if this were a different kind of talk and uh, I had a little more time, I'd show how our prayer book, the Anglican prayer book, constantly inculcates this vision of obedience. It constantly relies on God for obedience. It doesn't just say, thank you, God, for the gift of salvation. Now I'm going to really strive and try and obey you. No. The prayers and collects throughout the prayer book constantly inculcate this attitude that says, Lord, I'm not only dependent on you for salvation, I'm dependent on you for obedience. By the power of your spirit, lift me above my weak self, please. Yes, we are to strive to obey the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to say this evening, more important than our striving is our asking, seeking, knocking. And the giver of good gifts will give us the power we need to do to others what we would have them do to us. And I reckon only with that important insight in place are we ready to hear the very strong challenge that follows. Secondly then, accept unpopularity. Verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Despite its fame and influence, actually the Sermon on the Mount is still the road less travelled. 
Yes, it's shaped Western culture. Yes, many of the sayings of the Sermon on the Mount have become sort of proverbial in the English language, but even still, it's the road less traveled. And the, the, the question here is, are we happy to accept that? You know, apart from sociopaths, uh, most people are social creatures who like to know that we're not completely, you know, in the minority. We fret when we have got a minority position. We crave the affirmation of others. Most of us do. Those on social media, you post something and no one likes it, you fret. Hundreds of people like it and you go, oh. You wake up one morning and you've lost 30 LinkedIn uh, followers and you go, oh no, what have I done? We're social animals and we get anxious very easily when we adopt minority positions. And here's the thing, we all woke up last week in a less Christian world than the week before. At least that's what the media would have us think. The census was released, right? Uh, 2016 census just released and found that the number of those um, happily claiming to be Christian of some kind uh, dropped from 61% five years ago to 52%. That's the most dramatic decline in the history of the census in just five years, right? Uh, the number of people ticking no religion went from 22% to 30%. And if you listen to the pundits, it really looks like the writing's on the wall for religion. You know, the inevitable, inevitable march of secularism, on and on. The Manly Daily declared that we're losing our religion. It's, you know, front page headline declared that religion's on its way out. How does that make us feel? I've read a few things from Christians uh, that seem to be a little bit nervous because um, in a culture like ours that is so enamored with popularity, the decline in numbers of Christians can be put across like an, it's an argument, like it's a logical argument. Aha, there are fewer Christians than five years ago. Therefore, well, therefore what? If you live in a popularity culture, it seems, therefore, it's not as valid as it was five years ago, and it's on its way out, and so on. Who wants to be unpopular? Who wants to be on the wrong side of history? You often hear it. Now, of course, um, in a different setting, I'd point out in detail that in the global perspective, it's actually no religion that is on the decline. Yeah, here in Australia, it's uh, increasing, but according to the Pew Research Centre, a massive study just released in April, it's actually secularism that is declining uh, on the world stage. And of course, in Asia and Africa, Christianity is continuing to boom. But to go down that track would be to play the popularity game. And I don't want to play that game at all. I want to say, who cares? I mean, at one level, I care. I, you know... We feel a kind of salvation responsibility for the 100,000 people in a 10-minute drive around us, right? I want them all. Absolutely. But I don't want to ever confuse popularity with validity. I don't want to play that game. And here, Jesus is saying what we often say to our kids. 
don't we? Didn't we always say to our kids, don't follow the crowd. Don't just do what all your friends do. Well, Jesus is saying the same to us. The crowd is often wrong. The few are often right. And even when the gospel is screamingly popular, as it is in some parts of the world today, in different parts of Western history, sure, I don't want to think the popularity equals validity. As Jesus begins to bring the Sermon on the Mount to a close, he challenges his disciples not only to ask for obedience, but to accept unpopularity. Which feeds straight into the third and final challenge. Be careful who you listen to. Verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, the prophets, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The term prophet in Jesus' day did not mean a predictor of the future, the way we use the English word today. No, prophet was just the word for a popular preacher. Many people were called prophets, including Jesus, actually. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus was called a prophet by the crowds. And we know quite a few other popular preachers from Jesus' day, from the decades immediately before him and immediately after uh, him. One of the most famous was Judas of Gamla, who preached in this first century synagogue, uh, which you can still go visit uh, today in Gamla. And I know some of you have, yeah, Craig's certainly been there, and see, and a few others uh, have been there. And uh, we, 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 you know, as we, as we stood there, we, we tried to think about Judas of Gamla, who was in, incredibly influential as Jesus was a boy in preaching a message that is summarized by the ancient sources as no ruler but God. He said, God has to be our number one. We cannot accept the Roman authorities. And so he, with that message, led a massive rebellion against the Roman authorities who had occupied Israel. In AD 6, a huge rebellion broke out. The the Romans crushed the rebellion. But here's the interesting thing. Um, Judas's sons and grandsons, who were all contemporaries of Jesus, were also popular preachers of their father and grandfather's message, no ruler but God. And so when Jesus says, watch out for false prophets, we don't know that he's got Judas and his sons and grandsons in mind, but I can well imagine he would, because they had a message that bore a particular kind of fruit. Their message was that God's kingdom would come in a tornado of judgment against Rome, and we need to take up the sword against them. And Jesus says, watch out. Look at their fruit, verse 16. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Our Old Testament reading tonight is the passage from which Jesus got this idea of good and bad fruit. Isaiah offers a parable of the Lord looking for good fruit from his vineyard, which is Israel, finding only bad fruit, not good fruit. And then Isaiah concludes, the Lord looked for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness, 
but heard cries of distress. It's that that Jesus has in mind when he says, look at their fruit. The fruit of a prophet preacher like Judas of Gamla was violence couched as zeal and love for the Almighty. That is bad fruit when compared to the Sermon on the Mount. That's the point. Compared to the Sermon on the Mount with its love of enemies, do good to those who hate you, turn the other cheek, refuse to condemn others, all of that stuff, the teaching of Judas of Gamla led to bad fruit, which will be cut down and thrown into the fire, to use Jesus' language there in verse 19. But what about us? We have our own prophets. Some of them Christian, some of them more members of the world. You think of the famous preachers and authors and singers around the world in, in Christendom. We fill our head with that stuff. For others, the prophets are more sort of like the journalists we listen to, the news outlets we focus on, the magazines we read. And we fill our head with this stuff. And Jesus urges us to test their fruit. Whether what they say bears the fruit of the Sermon on the Mount. Interesting that here it's not a theological test. If we were preaching in another part of Scripture, we'd see that theological tests are also part of the mix. But here, Jesus' point is you judge them by fruit, the fruit of the life of the Sermon on the Mount, the degree to which their teaching promotes peacemaking, truth-telling, sexual integrity, love of enemies, non-violence, charity for the poor, the shunning of religious hypocrisy and the shunning of worldly materialism. That's the test. Every day we fill our heads with alternative voices. And then we wonder why the alternatives seem more tangible than Jesus. Hours and hours of all the alternatives and an hour at church once a week or once a fortnight to give the true average. And we wonder why Jesus seems distant. Why his vision seems a little bit hazy and the vision of the world clear. For some, these alternative voices are Christian preachers and authors and singers and so on. For others, it's talk show hosts. It's Fairfax or Murdoch journalists. It's our favorite social media feeds. But the thing is, we are shaped by what we absorb. We are shaped by what we absorb. So testing the prophets, watching out, is crucial. I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to a range of voices. I believe we should. But we should listen to those voices with our Christian critical faculties on. And I do believe that we should reconsider the sheer volume of stuff we put in our head. I don't even mean that we um, should read as much Bible as we do you know, all the other stuff. I'm of the view that actually the word of Christ is so powerful, just 10 minutes a day with your head in the word of God will blow out of the water all the alternative voices. Just 10 minutes a day. There's my money back guarantee this evening. 
10 minutes a day with your head in, in, in the Word of Christ in Scripture is more than enough to put in perspective eight hours of all the other stuff. Give it a go. But the thing is, if we're not putting our head in the Word of God at all, it shouldn't surprise us that we're not finding ourselves shaped by the Word of Christ. I don't mean to offend anyone in saying this, but I will offend everyone. Um, If you watch the Bolt Report five nights a week and only, you know, give the Lord every second Sunday, you're not going to be shaped by the Sermon on the Mount. Andrew Bolt's perspective is going to seem like, you know, the right perspective. It's going to feel tangible and secure. And to annoy the other half, if, if you are the kind of person who will devour the Finn Review and the Sydney Morning Herald, you know, every day, but hardly read the scriptures in the morning, of course the gospel of secular humanism is going to seem more real than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are shaped by what we fill our heads with. If you're the kind of person who will read way more of Vogue and House and Garden, you're going to think Roseville's normal and taking up your cross and following Jesus is weird. So I conclude by just saying, Jesus has given us the keys to living by his vision. Ask for obedience. Ask for it. Plead God daily. Change me, lift me, empower me by your spirit to live beyond my very ordinary self. Because God's grace is not simply the way into the kingdom, it's the way of living the kingdom. Accept unpopularity. Just decide that you will not care how popular Christianity is. If you're the last person on the planet following the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't change the truth. Truth is not a fashion contest. And let's all be careful who we listen to. Because we are shaped by what we fill our heads with. And I genuinely believe if you give the Word of God just 10 minutes a day, that is more than enough to put into perspective everything else you could ever hear in the day. So Lord, we pray that you would write this wisdom into our hearts by your Spirit. Lord, we confess that we have fallen so far from your way. We are poor in spirit, but we long to bear good fruit. We long to live for what we're made for, the vision of life that the Lord Jesus has given us. So we pray that in the power of your spirit, you would enable that. And help us to live in this world you have created.
by your vision, come what may. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our teacher, our saviour and Lord. Amen.